0: Good morning. This song was a little shorter than I expected, Adam, so it wasn't wasn't quite ready. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Um, continue to be more and more grateful for Adam as I get to know him. And as I was telling him and Amanda this morning, and I figure I should tell you all because you'll hear part of it in the morning, I'm um, stealing things from him. Uh, he prayed a couple weeks ago, the last time he preached, that the Lord... Would protect him from error. And I think that's a great pastoral prayer, and it's one that I pray throughout the week now. And we'll pray as we uh, open up God's word in a minute. And then, as he ended Sunday school this morning, he uh, said, "It may be inadequate, but I'm done." <laughs> and so sometimes, as teachers and preachers, you just all you can do is just trust the Lord. Right. All right. <clears throat> well, this morning we are in Daniel chapter four, <clears throat> as we continue our way through Daniel. Um, as Evan preached for us last week, we were wrapping up chapter 3. And as there is some kind of uh, textual, uh, some, you know, some would put the end of chapter 3, uh, the beginning of chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3. And so we may be starting chapter 4 or continuing chapter 4. However you want to say it, we are in chapter 4, starting verse 4. And we'll go through verse 18 this morning. Of course, we continue in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter four is the end of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and we have a few weeks left of him. And uh, it will end in a very, um, um, very interesting fashion. Chapter four is, as we set up this morning, his second dream, as we'll be introduced to that. And so, uh, let's do this. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning, and then we'll back up and see what the Lord has for us. So, Daniel chapter four, starting in verse four. Known to me its interpretation at last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Beltejar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods and I told him the dream, saying, "O Beltajar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their inter- and their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was f- fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom were not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you, were able, you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this morning. Thank you for a chance that we can gather here at North Hills, Lord, as your people. Thank you for all those who have joined us this morning, both in person and even online. And Lord, I just pray that you would lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit as we open your word and as we seek your truth. And Lord, I would do pray that you would protect me from error and that we would proclaim christ much this morning in his name we do pray amen well as we come to this text this is Uh, obviously the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and we just get the dream, we don't get the interpretation. So the interpretation will come next week, and so we can't really dive into the dream as much this morning. So there are four things I'd like us to look at that hopefully will help us through uh, this part of chapter 4. And I'll go ahead and give you these four things, the first of which is we're going to look at the state of Nebuchadnezzar at the state of Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, we're going to look at the spirit in Daniel, the state of Nebuchadnezzar, the spirit in Daniel. Thirdly, the subject of the dream. We'll look at what it's all about. And then fourthly, we'll end with the sentence of God. And so we'll spend most of our time on these first two uh, points this morning as we kind of understand what's happening and where Nebuchadnezzar is. So let's look at that. Let's look at the state of Nebuchadnezzar. What state is he in? So if you go to verse 4 there, it's a very interesting uh, verse. It's verse 2, but uh, that's that's first camp at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Sounds like a pretty good place to be, right? I mean, he was living the American dream before there was an American dream. He had it all. Uh, the, The word there, some of your translations may say content they said that i was content in my house and prospering in my palace uh, the aramaic word we have there it means contented uh it's almost often translated contented but it means at ease or at rest and it conveys both contentment and security <clears throat> it conveys contentment and security to be at ease to prosper in his palace and so you could only imagine how at ease, how contented, how secure Nebuchadnezzar felt. He was the ruler of the known world. He had all that his mind and his heart could imagine. Uh, he, had, uh, he had defeated all of his known enemies. There was no more wars at this moment for him. And so uh, he had conquered all that he could conquer. He had it all. As Some would say he was living his best life. And so he was. He had it all. He was content. He had conquered all of his enemies. He had great prosperity. Uh, he had brought it to Babylon. He had built impressive architecture that even now we talk about in history classes today. He had achieved all that he had set out to do, and he achieved more than anyone in his time frame in the world at that time. Though uh, Nebuchadnezzar had it all, he really had nothing. Because he did not have true contentment. He did not have true contentment. As we're going to see in just a moment in verse 4, he's going to go from this state of ease and prospering to a state of fear. Here in just a moment. And so we see he does not have truly what the heart needs to be at ease, and to be at rest and be content and have joy. So he had everything, yet he had nothing. For contentment only comes From belonging to the Lord. So you have this contrast between King Nebuchadnezzar, who had it all, and had this perceived sense of contentment, and you have these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you have Daniel and these other exiles who likely have a greater sense, who not likely, who do have a greater sense of contentment and ease and joy in the midst of being exiles from their country, because their hope and their faith and their trust and and their security was not in king nebuchadnezzar or his ability but was in the lord so for contentment true contentment only comes for belonging to the lord so let's use this opportunity to jump to a couple passages if you will let's go to first timothy because there's this this contrast here and i don't know if you've read all of chapter four uh, recently or uh, maybe if you remember kind of the the story of nebuchadnezzar but he is going to go from a great shift in the beginning of chapter four here to as we'll see his dream foreshadows what's going to happen to ultimately his humiliation at the end of chapter four so there is a great swing in nebuchadnezzar's life he's not going to be chilling at his palace and prospering and doing so well here shortly but let's go to first timothy chapter six as we think about what does contentment look like what is contentment for us today how do we how do, we, uh, how do we have this ease? How do we have this prosperity? How, do we, how are we content with where we are in life today? So 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so we see, especially the end, it's not, it's not um, riches that bring us discontentment, but it is this, it uses all kinds of different words there. Verse 9, it says desire, and then it says the love of money, and then it is the pursuit, and this craving of it. So it says to be content. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And so it should be something that we pursue, that we should pursue contentment. Now, Nebuchadnezzar pursued contentment. He pursued ease. He pursued uh, chapter four, verse four with all of his might. That's why he did. All that he did was so that he could have ease and prosperity. But yet he was pursuing it wrongly, Uh if you were with us during our, uh, our study through Habakkuk, you will be familiar with this passage. But go to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Undoubtedly, my favorite passage in Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. A couple of verses there. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor Fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and yields and the fields yield no food and the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. And so he says, situationally, if I have nothing, there is nothing good in my life. If I am not prospering in my palace, you could say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on, on my high places. But the choirmaster with was instruments. And so we see this picture that of the believer. For those who look to the Lord and trust the Lord, their contentment is not found in, what, in the earthly things that they receive. Their contentment is not found in what this world offers. Their pursuit is not even to gain these things the pursuit is to look to and to trust the lord philippians 4 let's both look at an encouraging passage and debunk a common misunderstanding of philippians chapter 4 verse 13 but let's look at philippians 4:11 through 13 let's start in verse 10 there as we look at god's provision I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And surely he didn't mean whatever situation he was in. There was a, um, a trivia last week at uh, Youth. It was how many times had Paul been stoned? And we started giving like some of these high numbers. You know, that's what you do in trivia, right? You guess a little high. But, you know, if you survive one stoning, you've done something miraculous, okay? And the man had been stoned and shipwrecked and all these things he had incurred and he had lived through. And he he says in all of these things, in every situation, he is content in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so we, we love Philippians 4:13, and put it on T-shirts and we put it on bumper stickers and put it wherever we put things. But, but the real picture there is not that we can achieve whatever our heart's desire is, but the, it is that if we look to Christ, we can endure all things. We can learn to be content in any situation in life as we look to and trust the Lord. And so we learn, so then our pursuit doesn't become the things themselves. Our pursuit simply becomes the greatest treasure, the treasure who is Christ. And so as we pursue Christ, we learn contentment in every situation because Christ is the same in every situation. So Nebuchadnezzar, he did not have true contentment. He had a temporary contentment. He had a perception of ease. He had a perception of prosperity. And he had this this perception of security. He felt like he was probably the most protected, secure man in the world. But it is only found, even security, as well as our prosperity and our contentment, is only found in the Lord. I love what The psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You can only imagine what Nebuchadnezzar's mantra was. What can man do to me? Nothing, because I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the king of Babylon. I am the king of the world. But that is not where our fearlessness comes from. Our fearlessness comes from being grounded in Christ. Because if the Lord is on our side, we will not fear what is the worst that man can do to me. So to those who belong to the Lord, to those who trust in the sovereignty of God, to those who die to self and who are alive in Christ, to those truly belong ease and prosperity. And so this is how we uh, pursue and how we, Uh, obtain ease and prosperity how we obtain contentment is also by looking to and resting in the lord so nebuchadnezzar is a good example of of what contentment does not look like, where true contentment does not come from. And we see how quickly it changes for Nebuchadnezzar. Because he goes there in verse 4, at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Then all of a sudden in verse 5, and this short little beginning of this first sentence in verse 5 changes dramatically. He says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. Not like a dream, oh, that, that kind of was scary and you bounce back from it after breakfast and you move on. But this is a dream that shook him to the core because he called again for all of the wise men, all the magicians and all the astrologers, all the Chaldeans of the land to come and to help him understand this dream because it shook him to the core. And so he became afraid. And who, who does he call? He goes back to the same thing he did in Daniel chapter 2. He goes back to the same methods that he had. And we've talked often about his Nebuchadnezzar saved. And at this point, it's pretty clear that he's not saved. And one, one way we see that is he's going back to the same methods. He's going back to leaning on his own understanding. And there is a way that seems right to man. but In the end, it leads to solutions. In the end, it leads to efficiency. And then it leads to, no, it leads to destruction. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going back to what seems right to him, to what he knows. A little more, one more uh, colorful description, as we see in Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog, he is returning to his vomit. Is a fool who repeats his folly. And So this is his folly. He turns back to these uh, helpless and hopeless men, this group of men, these Chaldeans. But then in comes Daniel. So we, we see here he has, he's, he's in bed uh, with his fancies and his visions, and he has, has his dream that bothers him. His, uh, these visions in my head alarmed me, so I made the decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and they might, that they might know that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And he's already seen them fail in this. He's already seen them try this in chapter 2 and it did not work. Then the magicians, and enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream a little bit different than the last time. So I'll give you guys a heads up. I'm not going to make you guess the dream this time. I'm going to tell you all the details of it. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. So we see there the, the state of Nebuchadnezzar. He's gone from, uh, from a very... Um, content state a seemingly content state to a very discontent state and he is he is bothered and so he is he is uh, he's looking for solutions he's gone from ease and prospering to fear and searching and now comes daniel he says so he looked for these these guys to make his interpretation known and in verse 8 at last came in before daniel came in before me he who was named beltashar After the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. So here comes Daniel and it's interesting to me. It says at last, at last comes down. Why wouldn't he go to Daniel first? And let's just say he's returning, his dog returned to his vomit. He's going back to his old ways. Why wouldn't Daniel just jump up to the front of the line? Guys, we've, pl- we've done this before. We've been through this. Everyone almost died. The Lord saved us. Let me just cut a cut to the chase and let me go interpret the, uh, the dream for the king. That's not what happened. Because at last, at the end, after everyone else failed, Daniel comes into the, the, to the throne room and is able to interpret the dream of the Lord because the Spirit of God is inside of him. Now, Daniel, as we know, he was the chief magician or the chief wise man. And so you could say that um, you know, he wanted uh, to let others, let others go and, and to, to have their chance, if you will. And as the chief, he would come in at the end if his guys couldn't, if the other guys couldn't get it right. But what we see is God's glory again on display. Because he knew that only God could bring the right interpretation as he's already done to the king. So it's only the work of the Spirit in Daniel that could do this. And so he knows this. And so he wants God to get the glory. And God will get the glory. and So so he allows all these these failed Chaldeans to to go before the king. They can't uh, interpret the king's dream rightfully or correctly. And so in comes Daniel. And I love what Nebuchadnezzar says about Daniel as he is getting to know Daniel more and more. And likely it's been maybe 30 years that he's been in service here. But he he says to him as he's describing Daniel, his name Belteshire, that's his Babylonian name after the name of my God and some some kind of combination of the, the pagan gods of Babylon. But he says, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? Now, again, we know that Nebuchadnezzar does not look to the Lord yet. He's he's, he's not a believer. He he has not placed his faith in the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's getting to know him. And so we would say is the spirit of God. And so there's a little uh, plurality here, and he kind of messes up. But ultimately, he knows he is seeing something in Daniel that is different. He is seeing something in Daniel that is not Daniel. He is seeing in Daniel the the Spirit of God at work. So to a degree, he's he's calling Daniel, but he's calling Daniel in the Spirit of God that dwells inside of him. And so as we look at this text, it's it's not about Daniel. As we know, the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. The hero of Daniel is the same hero of Habakkuk and the same hero of all the Bible. It is Christ. It is the Lord God at work. So we see that even here, this recognition that there is is something greater than just one of God's people. It is God Himself who is working through His servant Daniel to speak into this situation. And so how did this pagan king recognize the work of the Spirit of God? Because Daniel had been making it known from the very beginning. If you go back to Daniel chapter 2, just flip a couple pages over to your left. In the first dream, whenever this came up, Daniel chapter 2, verse uh, 27 And 28. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, no astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so he has been pointing from the very beginning. He's not saying, King, look at me so that I can be promoted. It's always been, look at God. And so Dan, so Nebuchadnezzar sees this. When he encounters Daniel, he is aware that Daniel is not just Daniel, but the, whole, the Spirit of God's, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is at work in Daniel to bring God the glory and to bring good to God's people. And so, the question I think for us today is what do others see in us? What do your coworkers? What is your boss? What is your spouse? What are your children? What is the cop who pulls you over? Your team, your, your peers, your friends? What do others see in us? Do they see patience in you? Do they see generosity in you? Do they see gentleness in you? Do they see love in you? What about kindness? Do they see peace? Do they see you as a self-controlled individual or faithfulness? Do they see joy in you? That was the fruits of spirits. I just changed the order, okay? (laughs) And yes, I mean, we can say that we, we see these things, and people see this in us. I can even point to friends of mine who are lost that you see most of these things in. So, it's less about what people see in you and rather who do they see in you. Do they see God at work in your life? Do they see when these things are true of you, when you are patient in a very impatient time? They say, Man, how can you be so patient right now? Well, I'm just a patient person. That's my personality. I marked that on my predictive index test, okay? All my personality tests show I'm a patient person. That's what we can naturally go to, right? But no, it is the Spirit of God. I don't know how I'm patient. It's only God inside of me who keeps me from wanting to snap someone's neck. How can I show love to an unloving situation? How can I be kind when no one else is kind? It's not because of who I am. It's because of who's in me. And if we point to Christ, and people they see less of us and more of Jesus. And let me tell you, church, people need to see less of you and more of Christ. And it doesn't come naturally. We have to be intentional as we point others to Jesus. Because like Daniel, the Spirit is in us. And we need to point others to Christ. So when we are patient and generous and gentle and loving and kind and full of peace and self-control and faithfulness, and as we are people who are marked by joy, let it be because they see our God. So we see the, the state of the king. We see the spirit in Daniel. And then let's look at this dream for a moment. Let's look at the subject of the dream. <clears throat> so he says, I told him the dream, saying, O Balthazar, chief of the magi- magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were These. So this starts off as just this kind of wonderful dream, right? And he sees and a similar, there are some similarities to his first dream, but he sees this, uh, this, this towering tree that has covered all the land, is providing for all the land. We'll get more into, into interpretation next week. But as you read this and you know who Nebuchadnezzar is, you would think, why would the wise men have difficulty? Why do these magicians struggle? I mean, I think most of us in here could probably read that and interpret, hey, this is what's going on, Nebuchadnezzar. But the reason I believe there was struggle was because of the second half. Because it's easy to go tell the king, oh, king, you are the great tree. You're covering all of the known world. Your, your provision is great and renowned. But who wants to tell him the second part? He said, I saw in the vision. The vision's of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And so before we get into this this last part here, so we see this beautiful tree. It's covering everything. It's feeding everything. It's providing for all uh, of of everything that's under it. But then the Holy One, these what we'll call angels, we'll look, look more into next week, these watchers, these messengers of the Lord come with a decree. They say, chop it down. Cut this beautiful, magnificent tree down. And so it starts to... This dream starts to turn and you can see the fear would come into someone who has this dream. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And so now we get into it needs a little interpretation. And we see that next week that, uh, that the Spirit again is going to give Daniel an interpretation for the king. But it gets dark, right? So we go from this prospering tree that is providing to now this tree that is cut down. And more than that, this stump has, has some weird stuff happening. Can we say that? And so what is happening here? And how does this relate to King Nebuchadnezzar? And so these wise men... Uh, they're not obviously full of the spirit of god and they don't want to bring this kind of um, dream to the king it's easy to speak that which is good and pleasant to the king it's something different to speak that which is true and difficult to the king and we know that daniel is one through the spirit who has had courage up to this point and has always spoken the truth and has spoken through the power of the holy spirit and so this dream is Uh it's gonna be difficult. This dream is going to as all as these dreams have with the Lord that God is using them to prophesy what's gonna happen to Nebuchadnezzar, what's gonna happen to his kingdom. We're gonna see for the rest of chapter four, things make a very drastic turn. But you gotta come the next couple weeks to hear the rest of the subject of the dream and what happens. So we see the state of the king, we see the spirit that's in Daniel, we see the subject of the dream, what's happening. Then we see, starting in verse 17, we see the sentence of God. We see the sentence of God. So in verse 17, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men and so it gives a pretty clear why of, of what's happening and what god's going to do He says god is going to raise up those he wants to raise up he tears down those he wants to tear down that god almighty establishes and ends kings and kingdoms this is a common thread throughout all of scriptures we always go back to the sovereignty of god god is always has always been is currently and always will be in absolute control there has never been a king there's never been a kingdom that has diminished god's power and authority and sovereignty by one iota and so it is god who establishes both kings and kingdoms and so he has this sentence It is is there, it is this decree, that it is a reminder that He is the one who rules, that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. And what does He do? He gives it to whomever He will. So if there is a leader in a kingdom, whether it's Babylon or Russia or the U.S. or some future power that we haven't been introduced yet, that leader has always been established by God. God has never said, oops. How did he get to power? What am I going to do now? I'm a little scared. God has never said that in the history of, 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 of anything. He is God and it is he who rules the kingdom of men. It is he who establishes those, these who will have places of leadership and rule temporarily. And it is he who sets them up and it is he who tears them down. So in this dream, we see that uh, not only does God rule over the kingdoms of men, but he places the lowliest of men over them. And that's, that's of, of note there. He rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to him every he will. And he sets over it the lowliest of men. And this is interesting. If you're King Nebuchadnezzar and you're having this dream and you're someone who's charged to, to task him to, um, to understand this and interpret this, Do you see Nebuchadnezzar as the lowliest of men? Do you see him as the one that God desires ultimately to rule in this kingdom? No. Nebuchadnezzar cannot be described as a lowly individual. Not as a humble individual. He is someone who is full of pride. Someone who is full of himself and his own vain glory. And so the sentence of God is that he condemns the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He condemns the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. When you say, I've been called a humble person. Again, my personality profile said, number three, I'm a humble person, humility. As Moses says, I'm the most humble man who's ever walked. I'm good if he gives, if he gives grace to the humble. If he sets in leadership, the lowliest of men, then that's me. But the reality is, is that no one is truly humble. No one, all of us are consumed with pride left to our own. You know, we can look at Nebuchadnezzar as we often do uh, some of the villains of Scripture. We can say, how, how can this person be this way? How can this person encounter God the way he has and still be living for himself? We can look at our own life and answer that question. We are apart from Christ, without Christ. We are sinful, prideful people that are set ultimately on our own destruction. So how can Nebuchadnezzar be like he is? How can he be so full of himself and committed to his own desires? It shouldn't surprise us. We can be the same way. Apart from the renewed life that is given to us through Christ, we are just as prideful and if you're honest with yourself you recognize that if you're honest with yourself you know the pride that exists in your heart even as a believer you know it's there and you don't fight it with good works you don't fight it with 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 uh better practices you fight it by turning constantly to christ by looking to him that we still struggle with sin and then i remember a couple of years ago in a community group we often went back and forth over what the original sin was Was it pride or was it unbelief yes it's both unbelief leads us to pride we see pride and lucifer in the very beginning but it's ultimately unbelief but at the core of every sin is those two things unbelief and pride every single sin that besets us is fueled by pride and unbelief and so yes we should know what pride is like we should know the the pull that it has on the heart and the mind and the will. And as God's people, as those who look to the Lord, we should know the only, the only fight against pride is submission. Is to release ourselves to the Lord. Is to die to self and be full of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. And Jesus invites us to come. To come to Him Go with me to one last passage, Matthew chapter 11. I was just going to read it to you, but just go with me real quick. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. One of the, the sweetest verses in Scripture. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many of you have read a book this past year, Gentle and Lowly, that looked at the the character of Jesus or one aspect of Jesus. And he describes himself here as gentle and lowly. And who does God say in Daniel? Who does he prophesy that as he removes these prideful leaders of the kingdoms of men, who does he say he's going to establish? Who does he say he's going to give it to? He's going to give it to the lowliest of men, the lowliest of men. People, where is, where am I? Daniel, here we go. Verse eighteen, verse seventeen. He sets over the lowliest of men, and ultimately the kingdom that is set up to rule forever. And he who is set to rule that kingdom is Christ, he who is gentle and lowly. And so the question before us this morning is the same question we have every week: is if you come to Jesus. Have you recognized your pride and have you surrendered to Him? Or are you still trying to figure this thing out? Are you still ultimately, whether it looks a little bit differently, are you still like Nebuchadnezzar, pursuing uh, your ease and prospering? Or are you going to cease from your works and look to Jesus and rest in the finished work of Christ? There is nothing but a dead end apart from pursuing Contentment in Christ, rest in Christ, salvation in Christ. And if you have, are you daily walking empowered by the Holy Spirit and acknowledging Christ before men? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning and thank you for a chance to, to turn to, to Daniel 4 this morning. And Lord, I just I pray that you have and will and will continue to take this word and to press it into our hearts and minds. That we might not see any hero except Christ. And so in these next few moments, as we respond through singing, through giving, and even through going as we leave this place, Lord, man, we make much of Jesus. So help us to see that and empower us by the Holy Spirit to do so. Help us respond in faith in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.